Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Everybody seems to try to be defining what a president should be these days. They're trying to tell us what he should look like, what he should act like, how he should talk, and what he should stand for. And in light of that, I want us to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And this morning and tonight, I want to talk about the ministry. What is the ministry supposed to be? What is it supposed to mean for a man to be called to ministry? For a person to be called to give their lives to missionary service? What does it mean to be set aside vocationally for the call of God on your life? How do you know it? What will it cost? What price is there to pay if you're going to be that? I find an interesting word, and we'll read all first six verses of Mark chapter 6, but I find an interesting word in verse 4 when Jesus said in Mark 6, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. I think Jesus spoke a volume when he said that. A prophet has honor except when you're talking about his hometown, his own relatives, and his household. This month is my 20th year of being in the ministry. And I can say without a doubt that most of my relatives don't know what to do with me. They don't know how to relate to me. They don't know what to say. The only thing they know to do is when I get in the room, is I'm a safe bet to ask me to say grace over the meal. <laughs> That's about all it is. They don't know how to talk to me. They don't know. They think I have, they think I have no clue that Atlanta even has a baseball team. <laughs> they think I live in some other world. They don't, know what to, they don't quite know what to say. It's always funny when relatives visit after the sermon because they kind of look at you like, I don't know whether to tell him it was good, I liked it, or just keep my mouth shut. They don't know what to do. In your own family, in your own household, in your own hometown. I can remember going a few years back and preaching in my home church, the church I grew up in, the only church I was ever a member of until I got married. And I remember the process of thinking through all of that. You know, when you grow up in a place, you come back and there's some things you want to say. And I said them. And, but before I said them, everybody was walking up. And, you know, all the people walking up, they were just pinching me and saying, Oh, I remember you when you were four years old. And they're just <laughs> shaking your face off. And, Oh, I remember you, boy, you've grown so big. And you put on some weight since the last time I saw you, too. And, you know, you just, those kind of people, you just want to rebuke in the name of Jesus and go on. <laughs> and I discovered something. Those people boxed me in. They love me. But they boxed me into some image of what they thought I was. For some of them, I had never grown past a toddler. Or I'd never grown beyond the youth group. They, they could still remember all my blowing it in junior high and high school. They never let me grow out of that. They never let me mature. They never let me grow up. I find that in my own family sometimes. 
And when I stood in that pulpit of my home church, knowing that I had to answer to God for what I said, not to them, it brought interesting results. People came because the little preacher boy grew up and now he's come back and made something out of his life and he's going to share with us. And they wanted me to tell them how lovely everything was and I looked out in a room with 50 people in it in an auditorium that seated 1,100 and nothing was lovely. On Sunday morning, 132 in Sunday school in a church that seats 1,100 with Sunday school space for 900 people. The church was dying and they hadn't woken up and smelled the coffee yet. They didn't know it. And God began to lay things on my heart, and one night I just cleared out a spot and pitched a fit. You know, I just said, Look, folks, if you're going to ever turn this thing around, you're going to have to do this and this and this. And I said, there's some people you're going to have to go back and ask forgiveness for, and I want you to know I was a prophet without honor from that moment on. Hadn't been asked back either. But let's just put it this way. I wouldn't accept the invitation. Because I know because I have in my mind shaken the dust off my feet because they did not receive the Word of God. That's what Scripture says that we're to do. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, about that shaking off the dust. You see, I believe it is the job of the minister to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I think it's the job of the minister to make people go out sad, mad, or glad, but just don't let them just go out thinking nothing. I'd rather you go out mad at me than walk out in neutral. If nothing else, the pulpit ought to make you think. We should not come to church and put our minds and our hearts and our spirits in neutral. Jesus came to his hometown. It's the end of his first year of ministry. He is the most popular public figure in all of Israel. Crowds are following him by the thousands. And yet he returns home for a return engagement, and they reject him. Now, if you'll remember, in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, uh, it tells us that Jesus opened the book of Isaiah and read the prophecy to them and rolled it up and said, Today, that scripture is fulfilled in your midst. You're looking at him. I'm Messiah. And they were astonished and amazed, and they tried to take him and push him off a cliff. Now, I tell you, if I've ever preached a revival in a church, and they tried to take me out and throw me off a cliff, I don't think I'd accept a return engagement. But Jesus came back. He came back not to give them more information. They already had all the information they needed. But to give them revelation and further revelation of who he was and what he had come to do. There is a rejected visit in the life of Jesus, and I want you to see it beginning in verse 1. He went from there, and he followed, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Ju Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here among us? Now let's skip to verse 5. We've already read verse 4. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. They could not accept that this preacher boy that had grown up in their town was the Son of God. He hadn't been to the school of the rabbis. He hadn't been to the right seminary. He didn't have the right degrees. He didn't have... In fact, he hadn't even been invited to come back. 
Here is a man who walks into their midst that they say, oh, we know him. But they didn't know him. They had been close to him, but they were far from him in understanding who he was and what his life was all about. I am amazed that Jesus went back. And yet he went back, and because of their familiarity with him, their advantage of knowing him became their disadvantage. They were so close, and yet they were so far. They had rejected him in Luke chapter 4 on his first visit. They didn't like his trial sermon. And now they reject him again, and he goes and speaks to them, and there are three things that happen. First thing is they couldn't refute his message. They could not refute his message. They were astonished. Now, they admitted that he had power. They admitted that he could work miracles, but they rejected his message about who he was. They were astonished. That word literally means they stood outside themselves. They backed away and said, I can't believe this man has this power. We know him. We're familiar with him. And yet they were blown away. They were in a state of ultimate surprise. They would recognize and acknowledge that there was something different about him, but they would not recognize him as Messiah. They asked the right question. Where did this man get these things? But they came to the wrong conclusion. Why? Because familiarity breeds contempt. It was the sin of over-familiarity. They were so familiar with Jesus that they missed who he really was. Someone has said, I wish that I could read the Gospels again as if it were the first time. We are so accustomed to the Gospels and the story of Jesus and we're so accustomed to some of the parables and the, uh, the prodigal son and the Sermon on the Mount and the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that it no longer brings a tear to our eye. It no longer stirs our heart. It no longer captivates our attention because we've heard it so often. We traffic in unfelt truth. We've gotten over it. We take it for granted. We've lost our first love. In fact, one historian says of the 10th century Greek scholars, they held in their lifeless hands the riches of their fathers without inheriting the Spirit. They read and compiled, but their languid souls seemed incapable of thought and action. These people knew so much, but they didn't know enough. You know, you can sit in a library all your life and never read a book. And you can be in church seven days a week and never meet Jesus. They were over-familiar. They thought they had him figured out. They thought they knew what he was and who he was, and they didn't have a clue. Now, I think there's two reasons why Jesus went back. I think he went back, first of all, to demonstrate the patience of God. God is a patient and loving God. He never turns his back on people. He gives them a chance and an opportunity to respond to him. God's patience is exhibited in the return visit. But not only that, God's persistence is exhibited. God exhibits his persistence in that he comes back a second time to give them an opportunity to respond to the message. Not only could they not refute his message, they couldn't refute his miracles. There were no mirrors and magic tricks and trap doors. These were real miracles. In fact, the miracles of Jesus were not refuted until the late 19th century. Most historians and commentators will agree that the age of doubting miracles began in the last 
hundred years in our so-called enlightened age. If they could have, they would have refuted his miracles. If they could have, they would have denied them. They would have ignored them, but they couldn't. They could not refute the miracle-working life of Jesus Christ. In fact, the proof was all around them. And Mark, as he writes his gospel, gives us in chapter 4 and 5, account after account after account of the miracle-working ministry of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, they resented his ministry. Verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the last part of verse 3 says, They took offense at him. Is not this the carpenter's son, Mary's son? Now in Luke chapter 4, they had called him the son of Joseph. Now they call him Mary's son. They were offended that he would suggest that he was Messiah. In fact, what they said was, according to Hebrew culture, you never identified a young man by who his mother was. You identified him by who his father was. And to identify him by who his mother was was to say that he was illegitimate. Here's what they did. Messiah standing before them, and they're saying in their hearts by saying, is this not Mary's son? I told you his mom and dad had to get married. I told you he was illegitimate. And what they're trying to imply by that is, son, based on your background, the best thing you can do is just sit down and be quiet. You don't have any right to come into our church and speak to us like this because you're illegitimate. You're not a legitimate child. You're Mary's son. We don't even know Joseph is your father for sure. And if it is, we heard you had to get married. They criticize and they rebuke Jesus. They were offended by him. Now, I never read the Bible just to try to skim over it. I really try to use my imagination, and I'd like to try to picture myself back in that situation and trying to think, you know, what, what did maybe they leave out and just bringing it all to head. And, and I got a feeling that there were some Baptists in that group that morning. And I think some of them said some things like this. Jesus, I'm old enough to be your grandfather's son and you don't have any right to talk to us like that. I got a feeling that somebody walked up to him and said, you know, I'm a charter member of this synagogue and I don't remember you being here when we started this place. And maybe somebody walked up to him and said, I tell you one thing, I was here before you came and I'll be here after you're gone probably be there after the rapture too, but that's another story. <laughs> they were offended at Jesus. Now you see, folks, we have painted this picture of Jesus to fit what we want him to be like. We think that Jesus was meek and mild and lowly and humble and sweet, and he was. But he also said more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus Christ was an offense. And when you and I stand in the name and in the spirit and in the power of Jesus Christ, we will become an offense to this world. You cannot walk around it. You cannot say, almost say something. You've got to say it the way Jesus said it. And he became an offense to them. I don't believe any pulpit committee was interested in Jesus. I don't think any pulpit committee was interested in Jeremiah or Amos or John the Baptist. In fact, I, 
I did something, I, and I, I can't believe I did this. I must have not been in my right mind. Knowing what I know about this church now, I must not have been in my right mind. But when I was in Oklahoma and I got the first contact from the pulpit committee here, I sent them a tape of what I consider probably the hardest clear out a spot and pitch a fit message that I've ever preached. Preached that with my in-laws there, and it scared them to death. And so I just sent that tape. I didn't pull out a sugar stick. I just went out, and I just pulled two or three tapes, and I said, well, if they can stand this, they can stand anything. I think sometimes preachers try to preach to please people and to get a crowd rather than trying to please Jesus and that the crowd in heaven is happy with what they're doing. You see, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be secure enough in our call that we say what God tells us to say regardless of the consequences. Jesus was an offense. Luther was an offense. I, as I studied church history, Luther was an offense. They tried to run him out of the church. They wanted to kill him. We brag and boast about Martin Luther now, but Martin Luther was considered a heretic in his day. To say that man was saved by grace and by grace alone upset the whole system of religion. He was criticized. He was mocked. There were all kinds of men, John Huss and others, that were burned at the stake because of their stand for Jesus Christ. C.H. Spurgeon, considered the prince of preachers, considered one of the greatest preachers on grace that ever lived, was criticized by his own denomination, was ostracized at a convention of preachers. They said, we don't want anything to do with Spurgeon. Spurgeon's off limits to us. Spurgeon's not one of us. They isolated one of the greatest preachers God ever raised up. And now today we revere his name, but I tell you, consistently through history, the bricks that are thrown at the prophets are usually used to build a monument to them within the next generation. Prophets are oftentimes more on the receiving end of mud than they are metals and brickbats than they are bouquets. But the office of prophet is still a valid office and it should be an exercise office in the pulpit in America. Somebody has asked me, who are you going to vote for in the election? Well, knowing what I know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who I'm probably going to vote for. But I'm going to tell you this, folks. We need to stay just enough in the middle of both parties to tell both parties to repent and come to Jesus. No Republicans going to heaven, no Democrats going to heaven. Only God's people are going to heaven. And we need to stand in the middle of both groups and say God's word is repent. God demands of us holiness and righteousness and a return to our biblical foundations. They rejected Jesus. You let a young man rise up in the church and begin to preach Jesus, and people tell him to be quiet. I like what Joel Gregory said. Joel Gregory said, I am not employed by First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas. I am employed by Kingdom of God, Incorporated. Verse 5 says, Jesus could do no miracle there. That is not a comment on the power of Jesus. That is a comment on the pride of Nazareth. And I believe that there are times when God wants to pour His Spirit out on a church, but He cannot because there is a spirit of Nazareth in the church. That spirit manifests itself in a questioning spirit, in a cynical spirit, in a doubting spirit, in a caustic spirit. That is the spirit of Nazareth. 
And when that spirit is evident, Jesus can do no miracle there. He can do no work in the midst of those people because there's a spirit there. That was the spirit of First Baptist Church in Nazareth. They were a people who were caught up in cynicism and in criticism and in doubt and in strife and in backbiting. And because of that, the power of Jesus could not rest on that church. Now, it doesn't take us much to figure out that that's still true today. A church that ever gets caught up in that kind of spirit ties the hand of God. Do you realize that a church can tie the hands of omnipotent God? A church can shackle sovereignty and limit God by its disobedience and unbelief and a desire to walk by their own ways and not by the ways of God. The book of Job, chapter 21, verse 14 says, Therefore they say to God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. We don't want to know your ways. Oh, I know what the Bible says, but this is what we think. Folks, our opinion, our tradition is never to be exalted above what the Word of God clearly states. Jesus wondered at their unbelief. He was not amazed at the might of Rome. He was not amazed at the splendor of the temple. He was not overwhelmed by the religious system and the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. Jesus was amazed that this little synagogue in Nazareth couldn't believe in him. They wouldn't trust him. They wouldn't walk by faith. And so because of that... I want us to look at, for the rest of the time this morning, the kind of preaching we need, the right kind of preaching. Now, this is my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect, so you'll understand. The first kind of preaching we need is apostolic preaching. Now, I don't mean these guys that are running around here saying, I'm a last day's apostle, I'm a last day's apostle. The last apostle died when John died. An apostle has to be someone who has physically been present and seen the resurrected Lord. And I don't know anybody alive that's that old. But by apostolic preaching, I'm talking about preaching Jesus Christ, virgin-born, sinless life, sacrificial death, resurrection in the body, ascension, glorification, and coming again. It's that simple. That's the kind of preaching that we need today. We need preachers who will get a word from God. Joseph Parker said, The man whose messages repent sets himself against his age and will be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. Now, could I give you a little statement? If you can't preach it like it is, if you don't believe it like it was... You can't preach it like it is if you don't believe it like it was. That means if you don't believe that what God's Word says is true, you have no apostolic authority and power in your preaching. Amen. Secondly, there has to be anointed preaching. Anointed preaching. We are so wired today with gimmicks and with programs and with stuff that if fire doesn't fall from heaven, we can create false fire and make it look like it came from heaven. I went to Foreign Missions Week at Ridgecrest a few years ago and I heard a missionary there proclaim in a Sunday morning service at Ridgecrest that we are so wired up that if the Holy Spirit of God left the Southern Baptist Convention, it'd take us 10 years to figure out he was gone. Bureaucracy. 
bureaucracy. We sit today on the verge of God doing something supernatural. Right now, in Russia, in St. Petersburg, and in five other cities in Russia, the Radio and Television Commission has for the first time done something aggressive. They are on television two hours a week. They broadcast the Word of Life, which is our version of the Baptist Hour. Now, I want you to hear something. There's 115 million people who are potential viewing audience on one secular television station in St. Petersburg, Russia, right now. They broadcast these services. They came and asked us to do something. And so we put two hours a week, and we have an agreement with them to go to up to seven hours a week of broadcasting, broadcasting all kinds of children's shows and everything else. There's a little children's show called The Sunshine Factory. Just a little, it's dated, it's old. I mean, it's not anything. We're so high-tech, we're bored by it. They're fascinated by it. They put a little tag on the end of that show because it teaches morals and family values and all those things. And they put a little tag on the end of that show and said, if you're interested in knowing more about this kind of stuff, please write to, and they gave the address. Secular surveys revealed that 9 million people watched that show. And they got 1 million letters from one 30-minute kids' show. Now, if NBC or ABC or CBS got a million letters for anything, they would consider it the greatest outpouring of response they've ever gotten. They got one million letters. In fact, let me tell you how many letters that was. The post office in St. Petersburg called the TV station and said, would you come and get all the mail and just bring us back what's not yours? I sat in a Europe, Middle East, North Africa committee meeting and I listened to this and I thought, boy, now here's one of those paradigm shifts. We've never done this way before. We've kind of all been a little territorial and here's one of those little shifts and here's the president of the Radio and Television Commission. He says, I'm just coming to see if maybe the Foreign Mission Board could help. And a couple of clowns sitting in that room that I don't know why we pay their salaries said, I don't know if that, that's, boy, that's a lot of work. One guy finally said, Brother, the world's going to hell and you're worried about a lot of work. You know what we need? We need the anointing of God on us again. We need to get out of the bureaucracy and get down to a lean, mean fighting machine and we need to go after it and attack hell with a water pistol if we have to, but let's do something that looks like it's got the power of God on it. An anointed preaching. Otherwise, all we've got is a farce, not a force. There's a lot of interest in, uh, among pulpit committees and different folks about where you went to seminary. That's important to some people. Most of the men I know that are great men of God, a lot of them didn't go to seminary. They didn't get messed up. <laughs> I tell anybody who goes to seminary, go and get, do as little as you can. Just get your degree and hang it on the wall because there's never going to be a committee that's going to say, son, what was your grade point average in seminary? They don't know. They don't care. All they want to know is you get that little piece of paper and did you walk across the stage did you get your tassel moved to the other side. That's all they want to know. They don't ever ask you a grade point average. And 85% of what you learn there anyway, you don't use in a local church. They never teach you how to do practical ministry. So I said, just don't worry about it. You see, we get hung up about, well, does 
he have a doctor's degree and does he have a master's degree and where did he get his master's degree from and, and is he educated in one of our fine schools? Folks, I'd rather be educated in the wilderness than educated in a seminary because you learn things on your knees and along with God you don't learn anywhere else. You know what the problem with Southern Baptist pulpits is today? We are dying by degrees. They're killing us. We've got educated idiots that don't know how to trust God and stand for the Word of God and stand unapologetically on Scripture and in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel without apology. Now, a big amen belongs there. <laughs> but since you won't give it, I'll go on. Number three, authoritative. Authoritative preaching. Now, I'm going to make another little side note here. I find it interesting. We have a new denomination within our denomination, you understand, because they don't want to pull out. They want to be able to you know, have it all. One of the high-ranking people in that denomination within a denomination has been quoted in the paper saying, we are going to get back to what built Southern Baptists. We're going to be back to missions and evangelism. That sounds really good. The last two years he pastored a church in the East, they didn't baptize one person in two years. Now, you ask me, and you answer me, is that rhetoric or is it truth? I'd say a guy that can't get anybody baptized in his church with a population in the town of 250,000 is probably lost, and he's just using words to keep a job. Authoritative preaching. We need authoritative preaching. The preacher asked the chairman of the deacons one time why people weren't responding to his message. He said, well, Pastor, I don't know. He said, of course, it could be the fact that you end every sermon by saying, well, <laughs> but what do I know? <laughs> we need a voice of authority. We need a voice that has power behind it. The Word of God is a two-edged sword, not a butter knife. We've got mild-mannered men preaching mild-mannered sermons to mild-mannered people, encouraging them to become more mild-mannered. We don't need anybody else mild-mannered. We need people that go out of a church on the authority of God and go into this world and tell them there's a difference in Jesus. Number four, there's absolute preaching that is needed. If the Bible is not absolute, it is obsolete. We have an absolute gospel. We have an absolute scripture. We have an absolute Father and an absolute Savior and an absolute plan of salvation. And our problem in the church today will not be from the new age. It'll not be from any cult. It'll not be from any decisions that are laid down by the Supreme Court or anybody else. Our problem is not the woodpeckers on the outside. It's the termites in the pulpit. We are being eaten away from the inside because we've lost our power. We've lost our authority. We've lost the anointing. We've lost the message that God gave us to give. Stephen Olford said, we are hearing everything from the pulpit today except what God says. And the one thing this world needs today is what God says. Not my opinion, not your opinion, not our thoughts, but what does God in His holy, undeniable, authoritative Word have to say to us? The gospel is not vague. It's specific. And we need to preach it like it is. Otherwise, the pulpits of America will lead churches to the graveyards of religion. 
We will have a name to be alive, but we will be dead. The question I think that every pastor ought to ask himself every day of his life, I think every staff member ought to ask, I think every missionary, every church, every Sunday school class ought to ask themselves, can God do a mighty work in this place or will he leave because of unbelief? Can God do something mighty or will he leave because of unbelief? Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Katz. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.